Good morning. Thanks, y'all, for coming out for week two of Table 101. I'm Father Spencer, one of the co-rectors here at the table. This week, we are going to review the history and get into a bit of the theology of Anglicanism, just as a review for anybody that wasn't able to make it. This, the past week, Sunday before today, uh, Father Matt led us uh, through a class, kind of bringing us up to speed on the history, the vision, and the practices of the table. Today, we're going to do the history of Anglicanism, and then next week, Father Ben is going to teach on the sacraments and worship at the table. And then on November the 14th, in our final session for Table 101, we will do a class on discipleship, mission, and leadership at the table. That'll be led by all three of us co-rectors. So hopefully you can make it out for that, and then we will have an all-congregation meeting on November the 21st. So thank you guys for joining us today carving out some time of your schedule to be with us. We're not going to have time to get into all of the history of Anglicanism, of course. This is just going to be about a 30-minute before we get into a time of question and response. Uh, and so I just wanted to give you guys some resources that I pulled from as I was putting this together. So three books primarily that we we brought this outline together for our teaching. The first is a really great primer on Anglicanism. It's a book called The Anglican Way by the late Father Thomas McKenzie. Uh, that is one of the first books that I read as I found myself on this uh, Canterbury Trail as I started to explore Anglicanism. And it's really a beginner's guide to Anglicanism. So I would recommend that to anybody. We've got several copies amongst different congregants here. And so if you ask around, uh, I'm happy to lend mine out. And I'm sure a couple other folks might be up for that as well. Another book that I pulled from a lot was The Accidental Anglican, which was by our our own bishop, Todd Hunter, who uh, had a similar journey to mine. I was com coming from a charismatic evangelical background. He uh, came, was coming out of the vineyard and found himself later in life becoming Anglican. And so kind of just lays out that journey, which was really helpful for me. And then another book that I think you guys would find interesting, especially if you uh, find yourself to be more uh, of a history buff, is there is a book called The Book of Common Prayer, A Biography, which is written by Alan Jacobs, which basically just details all of the history of how the Book of Common Prayer came together, some of the nuances and the infighting and the political aspects of it, which, you know, at all at the same time can be sometimes disheartening, interesting, insightful. It's complicated, like much of the history that we'll get into today. And so without further ado, let's dive right in. So the word Anglican actually means English. Essentially, then, when you hear an Anglican church, it just means the Church of England. Now, for good reason, I and probably most of you didn't grow up with an Anglican church just right around the corner. Actually, the expression of Anglicanism in the United States for most of the last 200 years since the inception of our country was the Episcopal Church. Now, the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church are part of the same family, both part of the Church of England. In fact, for anybody that is a Hamilton fan, Samuel Seabury, who is kind of a, an, a nuisance, he's a big rival of Hamilton's in the musical, he was the first person elected to be bishop of the Church of England in the United States. Now, of course, that was a t around the time of the Revolutionary War, so there's some complications there. When he was elected bishop... There was no other bishops here in the United States that could ordain him. And so he sailed back to London to try to be ordained there, but he encountered some 
difficulties there as well because he couldn't swear an oath of allegiance to the king. Obviously, with the Revolutionary War going on, it was kind of a crazy time to be going back there and saying, hey, we want to have the Church of England in the United States. And so the solution that he came to was he actually went to the Scottish Episcopal Church. And that is why the Anglican expression in the United States has been called the Episcopal Church for so long. So the Scottish Episcopal Church was legally recognized as part of the Church of England, but it was kind of ostracized or oppressed. They were kind of seen as outsiders because they also refused to acknowledge the Hanoverian kings. So as we get into all of this history, there's going to be some interesting facets, obviously some helpful and beautiful aspects of it, but you get the political complications, which are not anything that we're necessarily proud of. They, they just add some difficulties especially as we get into the monarchs and the infighting and things like that. But I just wanted to stress this point that the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church have a shared heritage. They're part of the same family. However, that family relationship has become very confusing and full of conflict and strife at times, right? So this is kind of what we've married into. We found ourselves here six years ago becoming Anglican becoming part of the, the diocese churches for the sake of others because of our bishop who we know and love greatly, Bishop Todd Hunter. Um, but we have married into this relationship that is super nuanced and complicated and has a long history. And so just like when we get married in real life, there's a lot of complications that come with that. There's a lot of different family dynamics that you may not be aware of that you start to learn on the fly. One thing that I just want to stress is that here on the ground in Indianapolis, we are trying to develop a relationship with the Episcopal Church. We want to create opportunities to rub shoulders with them, to learn from them, to have different ways of activating and engaging in our city together. In fact, Father Ben is actually taking an anti-racism class from the Episcopal Church currently. And so that is just something that's playing out here locally on the ground. And there is a lot of detail there, but we won't be able to get into all of that this morning. So we believe as you guys do, that the church started on Pentecost and it spread from there. It's kind of crazy, but Christians arrived in England as early as 67 AD. And Christianity on the British Isles had a different flavor than the rest of Europe from very early on, something that was referred to as a Celtic Christianity. And from, from its very beginning, it was more connected to the Eastern church in some ways than the Western church. So whereas the Western church had a legal view the Eastern Church had a more mystical approach to spirituality, where the, the West would see Christ more as a judge. In the Eastern Church, they would see Christ more as the great physician. In the West, the atonement theory would be more like, you broke the law, you need to be punished. And the Eastern view of atonement was more similar to, you've drunk poison, and you need a cure. Now, of course, this expression of Christianity evolved through immigration and invasions, different monarchs' rules. But by and large, it was kind of led and formed and developed by Patrick, Columa, Aidan, and others. St. Patrick is a name most of us are probably familiar with. He is a missionary who brought the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith to Irish Celts, or people that were thought of as barbarians at the time. And he came around 432 A.D., his approach was not forcing them to conform to the cultural expressions from Rome, but rather when Patrick came, he gave them a faith that was sensible for their everyday, concrete, common experiences. 
It was under the influence of these Irish and Celt abbots that Christianity was shaped in Britain. Then we have Augustine of Canterbury, who came in 597. He was a, a Benedictine monk who was sent on, a, sent on a Gregorian mission to Britain in the late 6th century to convert Anglo-Saxons. But when he arrived, he found that there was already a Christian presence there. And he surprisingly found that the Christian presence there had a distinct form and character from that of Rome. So the key characteristics of mission here for the Anglican Church are that Patrick developed a life of worship that was not just a transplant of a Roman faith. Christians gathered in monastic communities of worship, and from there, they engaged the people around them, eventually planting indigenous communities and expressions of their faith as people continued to be baptized and Christianity spread. So it's a very non-colonial approach to mission. And this is something that we really love about Anglicanism. This is the core of part of what attracted to us to this tradition. And we're trying to recapture it here today at the table. A key characteristic of spirituality is an emphasis on holistic faith. All of life is sacramental. So they organized in abbeys and monasteries around a rule of life with simple rhythms. So it was a monastic life amidst the culture. So it was kind of formed and shaped around spiritual practices instead of distinct doctrine. And that's something that we here at the table are familiar with, but we might call embodied participation. So it's super important to note here that Catholicism in England historically had a unique flavor, a unique character that was different from even the rest of the continent. So in a way, the English Reformation was just a way of accounting for what had already been true on the ground, making what was already happening official. So Henry VIII's wanting to annul his marriage is just one thing that happened to help catalyze this development, but it is not the reason that Anglicanism exists. Reformation in England was messy, and it was a largely political move. For instance, no more taxes to Rome, of course. But those moves opened room for wrestling with Protestant ideas. At its very best, the English Reformation allowed the Catholic Church in England to reach back and to seek to reclaim the faith and order of the early undivided church. A key figure in Anglicanism is Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He wrote the Book of Common Prayer and published it in 1549. There's a long history and tradition in Anglicanism of finding a life of prayer made sensible for ordinary common life. The Book of Common Prayer put liturgy and sermons and prayers into the language of the people. It was a sort of democratization of the, of the theology and prayer and liturgy of its day. There's a transition here from folks who largely were unable to read coming to Mass and having it performed in Latin, not understanding a single word of it, and then having the liturgy of the Eucharist on Sunday being in their native tongue. This is, the Book of Common Prayer was written about 100 years after the printing press was invented, and so there's this huge transition globally and in all of societies around the world where people are going largely from being illiterate to being able to have books in their house. It's a huge, huge transition culturally. And of course, this was very offensive to some people. Taking what was reserved for a few, understood by a few, and held in those hands. Of course, we can see like the dynamics of power at work here, right? 
like when the language is reserved for only a select few, then those people that hold that hold all the power. But this democratization, this printing of the Book of Common Prayer, this putting of it in the hands of people that are coming to church, in the, in the hands of the laity, is a huge fundamental part of Anglicanism. But it was so offensive that people died. In fact, for a while, every time a monarch died, there was a swap back and forth between Anglicanism and Catholicism. So when Edward, Edward VI died, Thomas Cranmer was then executed by Mary I. The Church of England finally became much more legitimized when Elizabeth I took over after Mary I. And then the Book of Common Prayer and Anglicanism had time to really get its roots down into the soil and become normalized as part of the culture. As you all know, Angl the Anglican Church spread around the globe through English colonialism, which is, in short, complicated. While in some places the liturgy has been decolonized, and more successfully than others in those places, they, it was able to be embodied by the local culture. In many other places, there was a cultural Anglicanism that was enforced and you can read that cultural enforcement as a white European brand of Anglicanism. It's important to note here that the spread of Anglicanism through colonialism was largely through means that were completely at odds, completely opposite with the approach of St. Patrick. When St. Patrick took the approach of planting the faith, but then allowing it to become that of the people that received it so that it could take on its distinct flavor and function and form. It's sad to say that through this colonial spread of Anglicanism, that which gave it its unique character and beauty was somewhat chopped off or forgotten. And that is part of our complicated past. Friends, there are many gifts of Anglicanism. At the heart of Anglicanism is a life of prayer that's grounded in the person and work of Christ revealed in Holy Scripture and passed down through the church, but made sensible for our everyday, concrete, common life. Anglicanism is not primarily about a pet theology or a favorite theologian, but it's, but it's defined by a certain type of catechism or practice. The gift of Anglicanism is the priority of the how over the what. Anglicanism is all about how we live under Jesus' lordship in our actual, real, day-to-day -day lives. It's not about how we figured God out, but about how we're learning to yield to God's action, his prior action and his current action in our midst now, today. It's about continuing to work out how to live faithfully in our current context. And that's why the Book of Common Prayer is the central document of Anglicanism. Anglicanism is rooted but contextual. There's continuity with the historic church, but it's contextualized for today. We have, as Anglicans, no distinctive theological dogma. It was created by people who were trying to find a middle way between the disparate extremes of Roman Catholicism and European Protestantism. A return to the faith and order of the early undivided church without the additions of Rome or without the deletions of Protestantism. It's what C.S. Lewis called a mere Christianity. It's a centered set, just trying to be Catholic under scripture and tradition, a contextualized Catholicism.
Most of you are probably familiar with the differing ideas between a centered set and a bounded set. And a bounded set, the boundaries are what define who is and isn't a part of the group. Boundaries and borders become the key identifiers. Who's in, who's out, who's with us, who's against us. This is how we know who we are because we know who's outside, who's not with us. But Anglicanism is not a bounded set. It's a centered set, a centered set of one faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the creeds, the councils of the early church, one canon of scripture as accepted by the early church, one sacramental life, the real presence of Christ in baptism and communion, and one apostolic ministry, bishops, priests, deacons, ordained by bishops going all the way back to Christ and the apostles. And friends, in the centered set, the center that we're moving towards is Jesus. And one of the things that I find so compelling and beautiful about Jesus being the centered of this set is that there's concrete action and posture and presence that we can discern and read and find in scripture. But there's also still room for mystery. Nobody at the table, nobody in any wing of the church has the market cornered on living into the presence and posture of Jesus. There's still a beautiful mystery of what it looks like for God to be flesh. Even though we have the historical accounts in scripture, the scriptural accounts of Christ, we still don't have the market cornered on who he is all the way. So we can enter into and try to move towards that mystery together. The Anglican way is captured in a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. This phrase means the law of praying is the law of believing. Prayer leads to belief, which then leads to living. In other words, liturgy leads to theology. Or as Anselm said, we worship in order to know. Friends, the good news is this. Our faith, the faith we find and receive in Anglicanism, is an embodied one. And even if you don't have all of the feels today, or if you come to serve the service one Sunday and the sermon just doesn't quite land for you, or even if you're in the middle of a season where you have some serious doubts about what you actually believe, you can come to the table. You can come and receive bread and wine. You can come and receive Christ, his body and his blood, even in those moments of lack or struggle. This is how the early church lived. They met together to celebrate the gospel by hearing scripture read in their midst and by sharing communion. They actually only came to define their beliefs more substantially to combat heresies as the faith continued to grow and spread all the way around the globe. Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi describes how Anglicanism was formed as a liturgical experiment. What we prioritize in our life together, which is prayer over belief, and it describes how we order our lives, which is around daily prayer and weekly Eucharist. The character of Anglicanism is that we major on articulating what it means to worship in concrete life rather than on secondary speculative theological issues. Now, you may be wondering, why is all of this so important? Well, how we understand who God is comes to define who we are and who and how we believe we're called to live. So this understanding allows us to see God as a God that we don't have to grasp or seek after all the way. It's not all contingent on our activity to find God. We are being grasped by God. We encounter 
the presence of Christ as we come in around the table of our Lord and receive the bread and the wine. We encounter his presence so that we can then embody and extend that presence. We're not just coming together on Sundays that we, so that we can learn about God. And this understanding of God and his activity and action in the world helps us to see ourselves not just as floating brains, but as all worshiping liturgical beings. Our habits and our practices reveal and shape. They have a purpose. It's not just about being right. So how does this apply? Well, it makes us liturgical. And both in our corporate worship, we embody the story of Christ in worship, but also in our daily life. This gives attention to practices and to how we live. This approach recognizes that we can't do this on our own and we don't get to make it up as we go. We receive the faith and we get to rely on those who have come before us to teach us how to pray. So this is key. Through receiving the foundation of this Anglican tradition, we are able to learn how to participate in the formative practices, which then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, equip us to discern what faithfulness looks like today and then to live into that. And without one aspect of that, it would be easy to go off track. But because we have this heritage, this foundation of tradition that's been passed down to us, and we're able to enter into that with the gift of Scripture, we can enter into that as a people, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are equipped to discern faithfulness today. I want to present one last item as part of this lesson. There is an illustration called the Compass Rose, which I was planning on drawing up here on the whiteboard, but actually we don't have any dry erase markers today. But the Compass Rose is meant to illustrate how we are a centered faith, how we are a centered set in Anglicanism, and how we are a big tent. So there's eight primary ways that many of us have tried to be faithful Christians up to this point. I don't want to reduce it down to just that, but there are eight. These, these that we are going to lay out are eight very common ways that we try to be faithful Christians. And we believe that there's room for each of these. Not only is there room, but these are each fundamentally important to us being able to be the body of Christ for today. So on this horizontal bar, going east and west, we have evangelical and Catholic. Sort of a me versus we approach. There's a key distinction there in how we see who we are and really what we see, how we see what it means to be human. Now there's room for both of those approaches. Depending on your background in the faith or outside of the faith, you probably have been shaped in different ways. On the vertical bar going north and south, we've got charismatic versus orthodox. Versus is the wrong word. We've got charismatic and orthodox. Or here and there which are distinct separate places. But here on the compass rows, we see that we've got space for both of those to exist together. On the, on the bar going northeast to southwest, we have contemplative and activists. So we've got be with contemplative, and we've got do with activists. These things, again, are commonly pitted against each other. They can be seen as, seen as being mutually exclusive or at odds with one another. But there is space for all of this within Anglicanism. On the northwest to southeast bar, we have conservative. And then on the other end, we have liberal or progressive. Now, of course, it's very important, especially in this cultural season that we are in, 
to make important note that some these words have been commonly co-opted to only mean what they mean in American politics. That is not what we're talking about. When we say conservative, we mean those who are cautious about change, those who are not necessarily in a hurry to innovate. They ask the question, okay, how have we handled this in the past? Then on the other side with liberal or progressive, got those who are looking to go forward. They're trying to forge a new path. They're seeking a way that we can inhabit faithfully and be relevant and responsive to the culture around us. They may find themselves asking the question, what's best? Even if we've never done it before, what's best? It's important to note here that there's room for all of this in Anglicanism, and not just begrudgingly is there room for it, but these are all important voices. As we discern what faithfulness in 2021, as we discern what faithfulness in 2022 looks like, we need all of these voices. We need people to be asking these questions. We need to be a people that can handle difference together. If you've ever wondered why you can't be more than just one thing, then you might be an Anglican. For reflection, you may just ask yourself, where do you find yourself on these bars? Have you ever been in a place where you felt like your voice or your approach to a problem or a discernment wasn't appreciated? Frankly, a lot of my past in church experiences, there has not been space for difference. And in a generous naming of it, we may say that the church had a very specific character or posture that it inhabited. And so we may have just felt like an outsider there because we weren't a part of that character or that posture. It didn't come natural to us. But uh, maybe less generous reading of it, and just in my experience, it's been true. Many times in those situations, the church has taken on, taken on the characteristics of the lead pastor. So there's kind of, kind, of, kind of come around this charismatic leader. And then for those who are different than that leader, they're made to feel like they're outsiders. But it's important to have people that would handle issues differently altogether. There is a room for all kinds of difference within Anglicanism. And that's one of the things that I find so beautiful about this tradition. Ultimately, we, we look at the, the creeds as the boundary of our faith. And there's great freedom that comes from seeing that boundary. Because if we know that that's the boundary of what is the faith and what isn't, we come together each Sunday and we proclaim the Nicene Creed together. We can say generously that anything that's not in the creed, we have space to discern together. Now, discern together, I want to be clear, does not mean just do whatever feels good to you. It also doesn't mean just do whatever the pastor says. But we come together and discern on the ground what it looks like to be faithful. There's plenty of freedom for us to be faithful. All right, let's open it up for some questions here.